don't change our behaviour, by the year 2050, there's going to be more plastic in the ocean than fish. So do we want a system of anarchy? And that's what we probably have at the moment. And they estimate that there's about 40.3 million people in some form of modern slavery. There is no single industry not touched by this issue. Definitely racists have been very good at using the internet. Hi, I'm Susan Carland and this is What Happens Next. This is something of a sliding doors podcast. For each topic, waste, right-wing extremism or modern-day slavery, we'll devote an entire episode to a different possible future. What will our future look like if we don't change? What could our future look like if we do? And what can we, the average person, do to try to create a future we all want? Today, in our first episode on waste, we talk trash with researchers and behaviour change experts Kim Borg and Mark Boulay. Now, Australia is also taking real action on climate change and we're getting results. Australia is doing our bit on climate change and we reject any suggestion to the contrary. Uh, my name is Mark Boulay. I'm a research fellow uh, at Behaviour Works Australia, which is a behaviour change research enterprise at Monash University. I work primarily in the environmental sustainability field, applying behavioural thinking, behavioural research methods to sustainability challenges. My name is Kim Borg. I am a researcher at Behaviour Works, but I'm also a full-time doctoral researcher. My PhD subject is looking at behaviour change and single-use plastics, particularly the role of media in fostering this new social norm that we're seeing about, hey, plastics are actually pretty bad. Now, we are all ringside at an environmental catastrophe. How bad, Mark, I'm going to ask you first, how bad is the current food waste problem? It's bad. Um, if anything, you could, to add to the list of crises that we seem to be developing, you could, you could say that the food system globally is in a waste crisis. We produce about three to four billion tonnes of food per year, and over a third of that is wasted. Um, so I always use the analogy that, you know, imagine you go shopping, buy three bags of groceries at the supermarket and on the way out you throw one of those in the bin. And that's essentially what we're doing with regards to food. So yeah. over a third of what we produce never actually gets eaten, which is is a moral outrage within itself, but it comes with a, a, an environmental and social baggage which just adds to the problem. We could be familiar with what you're saying. Mm. How many bags of spinach have we all chucked out? Exactly. We all buy it every week, mm. the massive one, yep. with full intention to use it in smoothies and salads, mm. and it turns to slush before we yep. even use it. Yeah. And food waste looks different across the world. So in, in the more industrialised, wealthier nations, it tends to be at the consumption stage, so us and the, our bags of spinach. But in the, in the developing nations, um, it's more at the agricultural, so it's more at the production and the growing um, phase where you see a lot more waste uh, and it's much less at the consumption phase. So waste in terms of this potato is a bit ugly, we're not going to send it to market? Yeah, so lost food, um, uh, food that isn't, doesn't meet particular standards, but also food that um, doesn't get to markets or transport in time rots on the vine because of a, a climate issue or a, a social upheaval. Which is a shocking realisation when we consider uh, rates of malnutrition around the world as well. What a, what a horrible dichotomy. I think the, the latest figures is about 11% of the global population is, has inadequate 
nutrition. And so we're unable to feed adequately already a global population at this size. That global population is predicted to increase, you know, close to nine, if not over nine billion in 20 years. And if we already have such inefficiencies in the system now, those are going to, probably going to get worse if we don't make changes. And we are going to probably see a greater proportion of people unable to be fed adequately. Kim, going back to my bag of spinach, we just talked about the way the actual spinach uh, is wasted, but of course it comes in a plastic bag. You specialise in plastic waste and plastic bag waste. How bad is the plastic waste problem at the moment? Current estimates are about 8 million tonnes of plastic waste is entering our oceans every year, and that equates to about a garbage truck full of plastic every day. Um, which is pretty terrifying considering how much plastic there is in everything. And even though plastic itself is really wonderful, um, it's so wonderful that now everyone is using it in everything, including unnecessary items. Things like straws or cutlery or plates that back in the 1950s when plastic was not necessarily being used in everything, it was sold to people as, you know what, you could throw away your dinner plate. Why would you do the washing up when you could just use it once and chuck it out? Which sounded great at the time. And Still it sounds great. It, it, I yeah, mean, it apart from great. the environmental problem, <laughs> who doesn't want to just never think about the dishes? Exactly. So we've cultivated this convenience culture, this throwaway culture, which sounded great at the time. And, you know, we're all about, we've got busy lives. Let's make it as easy as possible. But you know, what is it, 60, 70 years later, we're now really starting to see the repercussions and we're finding plastic everywhere because when you use a durable, versatile material in everything that doesn't actually break down for hundreds of years, then where does it go? There is no such place as a way. Yes. Mm. All right, I'm going to ask you to put on your dystopian goggles now and gaze into the future. Mm-hmm. If we continue on the trajectory that we are currently on in terms of food waste and plastic waste, what will things look like? So I think the estimate at the moment says if we don't change our behaviour, if we don't change our practices, if we don't change our management styles for plastic, by the year 2050, there's going to be more plastic in the ocean than fish, mm. which is kind of terrifying considering that fish is a, a source of food that billions of people around the world live on and if they're trying to find fish to actually eat they're either going to be coming up with you know bucketfuls of plastic or they're going to have fish that has eaten Mm. plastic already. Mm -hmm. And what about you Mark? Food waste emissions account for about a quarter of agricultural emissions overall so you think dystopian future it is contributing to something that we well know is going to make life a lot harder for humans on the planet which is climate change. But food waste also is an inefficient system, which means that our use of land and soil and fertilizers is also in itself unsustainable. The land that we have available to actually grow food becomes itself threatened. Um, and then that means we have to put more fertilizers into it. We have more inputs like water and energy and all the rest. So it's a symptom of a system which is one of overconsumption and means pretty much that, unfortunately, the human race is going to be running out of some of the fundamentals that we need to live. Food waste also drives up things like food prices. So we waste more food, food becomes a more in-demand commodity and prices will go up, which again affects a large part of the population that are already potentially struggling financially. Um, And they will then have greater trouble to actually have the diets that they need in order to survive and be healthy. 
much do you think this is a problem of the values that we have in society of ease and consumption? You know, you spoke about, yeah, let's just throw away the plates or I can't be bothered remembering my plastic bags or this is easier or, but I want to have raspberries all year round. How do we convince people uh, to actually get over the idea of consumption and ease for the benefit of the climate? I think ease again and and convenience, again, they're, they're probably symptoms of an underlying issue, which is we don't necessarily value products for their real cost. And I think this constant need for us to have products at the lowest possible price means we don't value them properly. And as a result, we tend to deal with them in a way that is disposable. I would say convenience is also very much a generational thing. Um, So a lot of research that's been done around waste looks at the different generations and their attitudes and behaviours around this. And it's really interesting that um, across a lot of environmental behaviours, young people are the ones kind of leading the charge publicly and stating, you know, we have we, we need to stop climate change, we have all these wonderful positive feelings, we need to protect the environment. Protests. Exactly. But when you look at behaviour, they're not following through. And that's because they've been raised in the convenience culture. Older generations who have grown up in times of scarcity know how to know it's not necessarily about the the value or their attitude so regardless of whether they think climate change is bad or waste is bad they have lived in a time where that was normal so what we need to do or what we what is possible because we've done it once we've made convenience the normal is make reuse and repair normal again. Actually, there is a bias to status quo. We do like things to be the way that they always are, which means that, oh, well, we can't possibly change because it means it won't be easy or we Mm. will then undermine this idea of convenience. But I don't think it's as simple as that. Well, yeah, and convenience is about, you know, ease of accessibility. Mm. It's about cost. It's about time. But a lot of those come down to perception as opposed to reality. So the perceived costs that we have associated with, oh, I have to bring my own bag. That means I'm going to have to buy a bag. If I forget one, I'll have to buy a new one. But as Mark said, we know from research that when you get people engaging in a particular behaviour that they think is going to be hard and time-consuming and costly, you can kind of bust some of those myths by just getting people to do it. And then they very quickly often learn that it's not as hard as they thought. Mm. And so once they've experienced it, they're more likely to do it again and again. And we can actually end up fostering a a new behavioural norm. What's more important, government intervention or industry, which is in the case of the plastic bag bang, the big Mm. supermarkets um, here said no more plastic bags Mm -hmm. on the back of big push from individuals. What has a bigger effect? What's going to work? Is it the individual's forcing a government or industry is it the or is it industry saying too bad if you think plastic bags are difficult we promise you do it for a couple of weeks and you'll forget that you ever didn't Mm. have to bring your canvas bags what does the research show you guys about the best way to create change i have so much to say on this (laughs) (laughs) well settle in um so i mean the short answer is everyone's got a role to play. Mm. Uh, I think a lot of people, when they see government intervening with a nation, a, a statewide plastic bag ban, they kind of go, oh, you know, it's not the government's place to do this. Nanny state. Yes. Whereas then other people are like, oh, the government should be banning more plastic. And everyone kind of puts blame onto other people mm. and to other institutions. But everyone's got a role to play. And from what I've seen in, in previous research and even what I've seen happen in Victoria, um, you kind of... you. 
you almost need to start with a bit of a culture of desire. So if you can start with a bit of an individual or community level push for actually we do want to do more and, you know, you get some individuals who are doing their own things but when you want to go at a slightly larger scale that's when you probably need different players to start having different things. I mean there's also it's all well and good for an individual to want to bring their own reusable container to get takeaway food. If the shop is not willing to take that, then that behaviour is not going to be entrenched. Mm. Then, you know, this this reuse culture that we're trying to cultivate can't exist. So we need the businesses to be on board in that respect. And at the end of the day, sometimes you do need government intervention if you want 100% compliance. You could have the best of intentions as an individual to reduce your food waste, but when you go to the supermarket and you are only able to buy a packet of food at a particular size, mm. or you have the endless amounts of, you know, buy one, get one free and other the promotions that they have, um, food waste is almost imposed on you in a sense from the supermarket. In addition to that, um, you then have date labels, which is an, another layer of regulation in, uh, of, of a framework that we have around outside of the retailer, mm -hmm. which also then imposes on you food waste because it says by this particular date, it's probably best that you don't eat the food. And a lot of people don't actually even understand how to interpret date labels because there's a variety of different types. And they automatically think the date is hit, I need to throw it out. When in actual fact, for some food, that's not the case. Mm. Um, if we don't have the opportunities, whether it's when we go to the supermarket with regards to how much, you know, the kind of packaging size that we get of food and, um, and so forth, if we don't have the opportunities to... I suppose, engage in some of the other behaviours because regulation prevents us from doing it or industry doesn't offer us that particular alternative, then there's only so much that the individual can do. So, yeah, it kind of is unfair. Maybe it's because it's easier to point the finger at the mm. individual rather than point the finger at industry and, and other groups. Kim, what is the Great Pacific Garbage Patch? Okay, so for those who don't know, our oceans are actually made up of a series of um, basically giant vortexes of water, which are called gyres. And in the northern Pacific between Hawaii and California, there is the biggest gyre that is full of human rubbish. And a lot of that is made up of plastic. So... How big is it? The weight of all of the, the masses of rubbish that's in there is about 80,000 tonnes, which equates to about 800 blue whales. Mm. So Kim measures everything in blue whale weight. <laughs> you that, mean you it, don't? That, no, I don't. No, that's no, no, actually no. quite weird, Mark. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yeah, but yeah. It's, it's the size of, it's twice the size of New South Wales. But the truth so it's like is... like a pontoon of rubbish just floating. No. So, and this is a common misconception is that people expect if they go to the, the Pacific Gyre, they will see an island of plastic that they can walk across. But the truth is because, as I said previously, plastic doesn't break down, but it breaks apart. So um, when it's exposed to sunlight and oxygen, it breaks down into smaller and smaller pieces, but it never goes away. It never goes into an organic component because it's not organic. So what we end up with in the, in the Great Pacific Garbage Patch is really a Great Pacific Garbage Soup. So if you were to trawl that area, which they've done, and stick a little net in there, run around for a couple of kilometres and pick it up, you will have a massive amount of plastic, but most of it will be as small as a pinhead. Right, and so most of it's actually underwater. So it's like an iceberg. Uh, 
I, I like soup. Any bigger pieces you will see floating on the top, but there is not a mound of plastic at all. It is literally a massive um, area, as I said, twice the size of New South Wales, where most of it is floating beneath the surface. Like an iceberg. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, and this is all due to plastics that no one's tried to recycle or it's just been, so it's swept out to sea? 80% of um, plastic either goes to landfill or ends up in the environment. And when it ends up in the environment, it pretty much ends up in the waterway because it is light and it floats mm. and it's waterproof. So it's this wonderful, durable, flexible material. But it ends up in the ocean. It breaks apart into smaller pieces. And some of the items that they've found in there have actually been dated from the 70s. Um, they've even done tests on plastic bags that were said to be biodegradable or compostable and they put them in the ocean and after three years they were still strong enough to hold something inside the plastic bag. So plastic basically doesn't go away. This all sounds very negative. <laughs> have you? Do you both have hope for the future? Personally, I do because uh, ever since I've started looking at this subject, I've noticed that there has been a massive shift in our – a massive social shift away from single-use plastics where people are really starting to become aware of the negative impacts on the environment. Um, they're also starting to try and find innovative solutions to avoiding single-use plastic items. And it's actually – it can be really easy. You know, we talked about convenience before and how mm. people go, oh, I want to do whatever's easiest. It can actually be really easy to bring your own bag if you just remember to have a bag in your back pocket or your handbag or your car. Um, and the more people are doing these behaviours, the more easy that they're finding it. And the more social licence the government has to do more initiatives as well, we'll probably see a lot more happening there. Mm. So I'm quite hopeful with this particular issue. Mm. There are other issues I'm less hopeful for, but I'll leave that one. <laughs> I think the, um, the plastic straw is a really good example because it, that's a pretty fast change. Mm. I think that's much faster than, say, plastic bags. Yes. Really rapid. I think, you know, a couple of iconic, horrible videos on Instagram mm -hmm. of turtles with straws in their nose. Oh, yeah. And now in a, in a relatively short period of time, I'm shocked if I go somewhere and see plastic straws. It's mm. quite jarring. Mm -hmm. um, so there is hope that things mm. can change quite fast yeah, with definitely. the right messaging. And also I think maybe one of the things straws had to their advantage was it wasn't a hard thing to give up. So you don't have to, like, if you forget to bring your metal straw, you still can drink from have the your glass. mouth. <laughs> ah. <laughs> you know, unless you happen to be someone who has a disability and needs it. Yes. For the vast majority of people, yeah. this wasn't a big loss and that probably worked in its favour too. Yeah, and straws, and I, I love the fact that you brought up social media because that's another thing that I think is contributing to this rapid change that's happening around plastics is that it's really easy to get the message out to millions of people around the world. So that, I know the video you're talking about with a turtle who was having a straw mm. extracted from its nostril. Mm. I, I don't think I've spoken to anyone who doesn't know that video. Change, like you said, change is possible and humans have shown that we can change very rapidly. Um, I think our problem is, is that a lot of our change tends to be reactive. So something has to be bad first mm. before we realise, oh God, we've got to make some change. We're less good at changing proactively, and that's the climate change issue writ large. I mean, we've known about it for over 50 years now, and yet we don't seem to be able to find the will to change until literally the fire is at our doorstep. Um, so I have hope with regards to that we can change and we will change. 
I suppose what fills me with a bit of fear and uncertainty is what has to hit the fan in a rather major catastrophic way and who's going to suffer as a result, humans, animals, ecosystems, what have you, before the change comes. Because unfortunately, we don't have a great track record of going, okay, that's coming, so let's change now, Mm. rather than, oh, it's here, God, we better change. Extinction Rebellion, climate strikes, Greta Thunberg. There was an article just recently in The, in the Guardian saying the world is basically going to hell in a handbasket environmentally. Mm. Mm. And on the other hand, we can't get people to care. Mm. Mm. Is it because the change seems so gradual that I go outside now, life still seems pretty fine. Mm. I mean, maybe it's a little bit hotter in summer, mm. maybe a little bit colder in winter, but nothing else has really changed. Mm. And until maybe sulfur is raining on our heads, mm. is that is that the issue? How do we get people to care? What we probably need to remove from our thinking is this assumption that in order to create change, people have to care. Oh, you took the words out of my mouth. So, yep. oh, damn it. <laughs> the, the one, Sorry, you got because that. We, we tend to think, the change? Well, we tend to think that the only way that we can create change is, is everybody cares. Yeah? But if we waited for everyone to care, in many cases it would, might be too late. And this is where the role of government comes in. And this is where the role of strong regulation comes in as well, where it doesn't necessarily wait for there to be a popular uprising that, you know, everyone's across social media, we have to do something, people on the streets. Because care, A, is exhausting for people and we can only alarm them so much before they switch off. Climate grief. Some people just won't care because this particular issue is not in their world. Um, so it, it, I, I think sometimes we need to realise that change, behaviour change in particular, doesn't necessarily always come from the same place that everyone assumes it, which is the thinking part of your brain, which is involved with some kind of also fear or concern for the future. And once that's activated, I will create change. Mm. You know, you think about your behaviour over your life and what, what has led to it to change. I can guarantee you only a proportion of that will be driven by the active part of your brain. In other cases, it'll be uh, brought on by new laws that have come in or by an infrastructure change that has occurred in your neighbourhood, which means you drive this way instead of that way, by what your peers have done. So you just follow along with what your peers are doing. Um, We tend to think that the only way that we can create change is through this shift of attitude. Everyone becomes aware, everyone cares, and then we're all in it together. But the reality is we don't change like that. We change through a whole bunch of other ways as well. And I think as change makers, we need to be more comfortable with pushing those. It could be finding out what it is that they value and what their attitudes are and how can we how can we curate the the message to appeal to the things that they value? So I, w- I was talking yesterday with a bunch of um, changemakers, um, councils talking about how do we get people to care for nature so that they protect it. And we made the point of, well, some people don't care about the environment, but they do care about their own health. So if we tell them that spending time in nature is actually really good for their mental health, their well-being, their physical health, that could be a better hook than saying, go out in nature and look at the pretty animals and, mm. you know, we can protect them. Mm. So it's not about necessarily trying to get everyone to care for the same thing, but trying to find that common ground that has the same solution and the same outcome that everyone can get on board with. If, if you look at probably the, you know, some of the examples that we have in our society where change has happened, and let's look at smoking in a country mm. like Australia. 
you know, we have got a reduction in smoking that has occurred over the years. Yeah. So people are doing more of the right thing, which in this case is not smoking as much. But what has led to that hasn't been just a bunch of campaigns that try and get people to care more about you know, the, the impact of smoking and that we need to do something. There's been a quit hotline, which gives people direct tools in order to create some change for themselves. We've banned advertising of cigarettes at sporting events. We then banned cigarettes from being smoked inside. We then did a, a number of promotional campaigns over the years. So there's been, there's been a, a, a range of different interventions that have been applied in order for us to gradually reduce our smoking rates. And only a part of those have had to do with public awareness and caring. And a lot of it was behind the scenes of tweaking some of these other things in order to create change. So that's, that's for smoking, but it was the same, same situation for, say, how seatbelts were introduced in Victoria and how mm. we gradually reduced road toll. And you know. in the context of waste, recycling is another example. Mm. Recycling hasn't always been a thing. It hasn't always been a big thing. But through a range of changes, which includes some area of environmental consciousness, but it includes, um, you know, councils giving us recycling bins. If we didn't have the recycling bins, we'd probably think it was too hard and we probably wouldn't do mm. it. So we've seen increases in recycling across yeah, many mm. developed countries. I think we look for that, as I said before, we look for the silver bullet and we look for change to be instantaneous. But... Case studies like smoking show us that there's no silver bullet. It's a range of different things and change is slow. Is one of the problems with the need for slow change to mm. be sustainable yeah, is. that yeah. with the environment, we actually don't have time? Mm. Yeah. And this, is, and this is the fear that I have is that change will come, but it, in some cases, the, the, the dark side of me that wakes me up at three in the morning and I don't sleep... Mm thinks, gosh, the shit is really going to hit the fan and people are going to suffer. And unfortunately, it's probably going to be the ones that have the least buffer to those sort of, you know, catastrophes because the rate at which we need to change, we're just not doing that at the moment. Yeah, we need I mean. a revolution is what you're calling for. <laughs> <laughs> yes. A bloody stop put, coup Stop putting words in my road. mouth, but absolutely I am. <laughs> My, my deep, dark thing that wakes me up at night is, because I'm a nerd, I've read Darwin, and one of the comments that's really stuck with me is that every population that booms in any species mm. eventually collapses once they consume all of their resources. Mm -hmm. But I don't want to go down this path because that's, that's the thing that keeps me up at night yeah. is that at some point we're going to collapse. And Nature we're doing always it to wins. ourselves. Mm. Yeah. Well, yeah, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. So the recycling crisis, like two years ago, everything was working quote unquote, um, because Australia had a system where we could collect our recycling and we could send it somewhere else for processing. They would turn it into another product or um, raw material that could go somewhere else for manufacturing and then eventually it would come back to us. So at that point it was working. But then when all these Southeast Asian countries have said, actually, we can't take this because it's not working for us, it was, if anything, a wake-up call for Australia. And to be honest, it's presented an opportunity because we were selling a material 
now we have an opportunity for recovering that material and keeping it all in-house. So if we can recover our own plastics, we can then, you know, reignite the industry here, the waste industry, and, you know, focus on resource recovery, focus back on manufacturing and remanufacturing, um, have things like, you know, container deposit schemes where you take the item back and you reuse it again. You don't even worry about breaking it down um, and going through that costly process. So I think then from what I've seen, it, Victoria at least seems to be treating this as an opportunity. What can we do? We need to be doing something about this. We need to do something very quickly as well. Um, and there's been a lot happening, um, but how long that takes to actually mm. get out there and, and um, affect change is, is still sort of to be seen. But it's definitely an opportunity. No one has looked at it and gone, oh, we're all screwed. We're just going to send all our recycling to landfill. I know some, some councils did that for a very brief period of time. Um, but we're trying. <laughs> They're trying. Everyone's trying. <laughs> Kim Borg, Mark Boulay, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank See you in the revolution. Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to see. Fear not, it's not all doom and gloom. In our next episode, we'll take a closer look at how we move towards a more circular economy and explore the changes we need to make this a reality. Special thanks to our guests Kim Borg and Mark Boulay from Behaviour Works at the Monash Sustainable Development Institute. Thanks for listening. See you on the next episode of What Happens Next. What happens next?